Welcome to the Movie Planet. This week, we are going to be talking about Ghostbusters from 1984 and comparing it at the very end with Ghostbusters, the new version that came out a couple of years ago. JC and I went to go see this, and uh, we felt this is we need to do both movies and compare them and contrast. So the majority of the show is actually Ghostbusters 1984, which we will grade, and then we give a quick grade about the new Ghostbusters uh, with the all-female cast. So we hope you enjoy the show, and uh, here we go. With Joe. <coughs> Sir, what you had there was what we refer to as a focused, non-terminal repeating phantasm or a class 5 full roaming vapor. Real nasty one, too. And JC. You will come in one of the pre-chosen forms. During the rectification of the Voldrani, the Traveler came as a large and moving tour. Then, during the third reconciliation of the last of the McKetrick supplicants, they chose a new form for him, that of a giant slore. Many shugs and zools knew what it was to be roasted in the depths of the slore that day, I can tell you. This week, we are uh, discussing Ghostbusters 1984, the original, the Bill Murray, Harold Ramis, Rick Moranis, Dan Aykroyd, Winston Zeddemore's Ernie Hudson. Uh, <laughs> you got, it's all-star cast. Yes. And we're doing this because this week, a- another movie came out. Which we also happened to see yesterday. We saw yesterday with a, considered today, an all-star cast of comedians, if you will. I uh, completely agree. And but we're we're gonna talk about that later. Yeah. We'll so we're that. gonna we're gonna spend most of our analysis on the nineteen eighty four one. Yes. And, and that's what we decided our recess is gonna be about. So, JC, I l- I lent you Ghostbusters because you hadn't seen it in a while. Hadn't seen it in and a while. It was kind of funny because this week it was played all week on AMC and TNT. Oh, was it? I yes. Didn't catch that. Which is I was sitting there going, well, I need to watch it again too. He has my copy. Oh, well, you... <laughs> sorry. Oops. Yeah. So I had to watch censored versions of it on TV. If that happens in the future, we need to just go back to, to movie nights at my house. Okay, JC, was this a movie that you were looking forward to seeing? Yes, it was. I had seen it for the first time in college and was excited to see it again here. This is this is probably the second time I've ever seen it. Which, which is which, astounding which, to me. Which Joe about had... Uh, see, Joe wants to kill me today. Um, it was, it was uh, probably... The, Maybe the third, but I'm pretty sure it was the second time I've ever seen it. And to be fair, I did grow up watching the TV show. And the cartoon. That, the, the cartoon with cartoon Egon and all that. And that's my Ghostbusters memory. So this movie, I, I kind of didn't see it until I was in my 20s. So it's it's a little, I, I don't have the nostalgia that Joe obviously has. You're going it. into it from a perspective that I probably can't relate to, but it's a perspective that is out there, I'm sure. Yeah. Especially now with, I mean, a lot of people are now only going to see it when they're older. Unless they're my age and they have kids and they're like, okay, you know what, you're going you're to watch Ghostbusters, sit down, you're watching this movie. You know what's sad? Like, I, I have my movie set up that the boy needs to watch and this wouldn't come up unless, like, you would remind me. Yeah, okay. Well, <laughs> this may be one that Uncle Joe needs to, to remind him to I, watch. I always like revisiting classic movies from my childhood. I do. As we all should. Uh, and and only only to see if they still hold up. And there are movies that I liked when I was a kid that do not hold up. 
and I'm pointing right at you, Battle of Endor. And <laughs> I'm sorry, I loved that movie when I was a kid. I, I wore the tape out of that movie. And then I remember seeing it in the store, and I was like, oh my gosh, you get both Battle of Endor and Caravan of Courage, the, the Star Wars Ewok movies, for $8? Oh my gosh, what a deal. I remember grabbing it, running home, watching it, and going, oh my God, what the f*** was I watching when I was a kid? <laughs> <laughs> and so when I go back, yeah, I'll look at a movie and I'll be like, okay, this was good as a kid, is it good as an adult? No? Okay. Wasn't I thinking? But sometimes you come across one that you still laugh at. And this movie is usually on TV once or twice a year. And when I see it, that's when I throw my DVD or Blu-ray in because I want to watch the uncensored version. So when we decide to do this the same week as the new Ghostbusters movie, a concept reboot, which I'll touch on later, being released, I was excited. It's like watching Star Trek the motion picture the uh, same week as Star Trek 2009. Yeah, it's a good idea, but... Oh. Yeah, I know. It's All awful. Right. Moving on, the so synopsis. Here's the synopsis of the movie. Parapsychologists Peter Venkman, Raymond Stance, and Egon Spengler are called to the New York Public Library to investigate recent paranormal activity. They encounter the ghost of a dead librarian, but are frightened away when she transforms into a horrifying monster. After losing their jobs at Columbia University, the trio establish a paranormal investigation and extermination service known as Ghostbusters. They develop high-tech equipment capable of capturing ghosts and open their business in a disused, run-down firehouse. Egon warns them never to cross the energy streams of their proton pack weapons, as this could cause a catastrophic explosion. They capture their first ghost, Slimer, at a hotel and deposit it in a specially built containment unit in the firehouse basement. As paranormal activity increases in New York City, they hire a fourth member, Winston Zettimore, to cope with demand. The Ghostbusters are retained by cellist Dana Barrett, whose apartment is haunted by a demonic spirit, Zool, a demigod worshipped as a servant to Gozer the Gozerian, a Sumerian shapeshifting god of destruction. Venkman takes a particular interest in the case and competes with Dana's neighbor, accountant Louis Tully, for her affection. As the Ghostbusters investigate, Dana is demonically possessed by Zool, which declares itself the Gatekeeper, and Lewis by a similar demon, Vince Clortho, the Keymaster. Both demons speak of the coming of the destructive Gozer and the release of the imprisoned ghosts, and the Ghostbusters take steps to keep the two apart. Walter Peck, a lawyer representing the Environmental Protection Agency, has the Ghostbusters arrested for operating unlicensed waste handlers and orders their ghost containment system deactivated, causing an explosion that releases hundreds of ghosts. The ghosts wreak havoc throughout the city while Louis Vince advances towards Dana, Zool's, apartment. Their romantic encounter opens the gate and transforms them into supernatural hounds. Consulting blueprints of Dana's apartment building, the Ghostbusters learn that mad doctor and cult leader Evo Shandor, claiming humanity was too sick to survive after World War I, designed the building as a gateway to summon Gozer and bring about the end of the world. The Ghostbusters are released from custody to combat the supernatural crisis, but after reaching the roof of Dana's building, they are unable to prevent the arrival of Gozer, who appears in the form of a woman. Briefly subdued by the team, Gozer disappears, but her voice echoes that the Destructor will follow, taking a form chosen by the team. Ray inadvertently recalls a beloved corporate mascot from his childhood, something that could never ever possibly destroy us, and the Destructor arrives in the form of a giant stay-puffed marshmallow man and attacks the city. The Ghostbusters cross their proton pack energy streams, reversing the particle flow, and fire them against Gozer's portal. 
The explosion defeats Gozer, slash the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man, and frees Dana and Lewis from their possessor demons. As thousands of New Yorkers wipe themselves free of Marshmallow, the Ghostbusters are welcomed on the street as heroes. So there you have it. Uh, JC, you finished watching the movie. Mm-hmm. You, you press stop. I press stop. What are you thinking? This is a great nostalgia movie. Hmm. I, 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 I was happy I had seen it, and I was happy I was watching it for the podcast. To where and, and you chuckled because... This was a movie you said you didn't need to take notes. I have an, I have an entire page of <laughs> yes, notes <you> do. <laughs> uh, that I took on the on the movie, and it is one that I consider a must see for all. I will say that. Okay, everyone, if you like movies, you need to see this at one point in your life. But if I'm being honest, I don't feel like it's a movie that you watch once a year. It's not an over and over and over again movie. Now, I'm also saying that having only seen it twice. Yes. So maybe it, as I see it more often, it may grow on me and grow on me. To me, the movie starts off incredibly slow. It's it's very slow going. But by the end, you're so happy you went on the journey. Okay. Like, by the end of it, it, seem, it seems that the the jokes get better as you move on. The story, of course, makes sense as you move on, and I know that storytelling. Mm-hmm. You don't have a clue what's going on at the beginning. You have to wait to the end to figure out what's going on. Yeah. But but movies that you love, you 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 loved going back to them because you can latch on to the details, to the jokes, to to everything that's going on about it. And you, even though I know I had seen it before, when I started watching it, I'm like, if I'm being honest, at the beginning, I, I sort of wrote to myself. Why did I like this? And I, I literally felt that as I was watching the beginning part of the movies. I'm like, there's a reason this is a great movie. There's a reason that this is known by everyone and beloved by everyone. But I literally got the sense, what is it again? Did you feel kind of like out of the loop? Yes. I felt like there was a joke I was missing. But by the end of the movie, oh, okay, I enjoyed it. There's a reason I sat down to watch this. Okay. So, so that be, that out-of-the-loop feeling, that literally is just at the beginning. Yeah. So, Joe, was this a movie you were looking forward to seeing? I had to give this a lot of thought because, again, it, it's another movie that I looked forward to seeing, and it, it's I, I, I'm always going to see this movie. Or sorry, what did you think after yeah. watching it? This movie is one of the few comedies that I think stands the test of time. And the reason why is because... What I see in a lot of comedies nowadays, the ones that are going to slap you with a laugh right across the way all the way through summertime, is they rely on pop culture references that are no longer relevant five years later. I agree. You know, like they'll they, be. A, they date themselves and they don't realize they're doing it. Exactly. And I mean, you can point at comedies in the past that have done this where they rely on those because they're current, funny, and they'll make a joke about, say, Belle Biv DeVoe, but 20 years later, who the f knows who they are? Yeah. It's not funny anymore. Nope. The jokes in this movie are timeless. You can watch them at any time, and they don't rely on that. The jokes, yes. Yeah. The jokes can be told in any decade, and they're still funny. Now, you made a comment, actually, uh, in the car ride about it being Cold War-esque. Can you give me more on that? So what I mean by Cold War-esque is there is a lot of science jargon in this. In Yeah. Dan Aykroyd starts talking, and at one point I'm like, I feel like I'm listening to Boyd. There are so many times that I and will... And I love listening to Boyd. So. And, and, and I will be talking to Boyd, and about three sentences in, Boyd has gone over my head. He's using words that I don't know or I don't understand. Mm-hmm. And 
I, I'm just like, dude, and I tell him, and he, I'm sure he gets frustrated with me, but I'm like, please talk to me like I'm a two-year-old. But isn't that why you have Venkman there? Because Venkman doesn't know either, and he has to kind of sit there and go, yeah, nobody knows what you're talking about, right? But again, it's about 30 minutes into the movie where Venkman finally starts saying that stuff. No, he doesn't. It is. Anyway. He says it the minute they get to the library. Anyway, so, uh, actually, you're right, he does. Sorry, <laughs> I take that back. So... What I mean by Cold War-esque is the the techno jargon that they use felt very cosmonaut I felt like I was listening to two cosmonauts talking about how to build a space capsule in the 1960s. Just the way they were using, talking about circuits and things like that. The, the, as I was trying to latch on to it, I spent the whole time going, is that still a thing? Do they still use? They don't use those anymore. Nope, nope. That's not no. That's not what we would call that. That's not what that is. the 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 jargon that does hold up is they did a very good job, and this is brilliant script writing by Dan Aykroyd or whoever wrote it. They do a good job of using big words to describe actions, and of course, I can't think of ones. But when they were describing the slime, or they were describing the events, ectoplasmic. <laughs> yeah, though. Though, well. The point is, is, is there are words in there where I completely am behind them, and then there's others that I'm. They just felt very dated to me. Okay, that, that's the best thing I can say. Is and it, I think that's it a felt fair, like I was watching a Cold War, two Cold War scientists talk. I think it's fair to say that because you you can't make a movie in any decade without having it any some, something mirror it in the movie, especially when you're dealing with science. Yeah, especially when you're dealing with science. Uh, I think for for the most like when I watch this movie, and I've probably seen it about 150 times. I've never gotten that vibe. And having rewatched it again, because as soon as we had got done talking yesterday, I rewatched Ghostbusters because I wanted to see what it was. I still didn't get it. I still didn't get that vibe. But maybe it's just because I come from a less historical background uh, on this movie. I mean, you're going into this with a perspective because you are a history buff. Yeah. I didn't have that stuff growing up where I was thinking about those things. And, and so, again, I'm not watching this as a kid where my mind would be empty. Right. Like, and that's the other thing that kind of I have working against me is I'm watching it as an adult with preconceived ideas because I don't have Joe's magic power of turning my brain off. And Not a magic power. <laughs> and um, so, yeah. So that's what I meant by Cold War-esque. Um, okay. Well, hey, what were the best parts of this movie for you? All right. For me, the best parts of the movie was Rick Moranis. I loved Rick Moranis. <laughs> he was awesome. A, because... <laughs> I only know him from Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Oh. And to watch him in this, I'm like, holy shit, he's funny. Oh. Because I just knew him as the cheesy dad. Like, this is legit funny shit. I, I also loved uh, the nostalgia of the opening in the library. I had worked in a library growing up. Okay, so you and were familiar so, with card catalogs. And so when I saw this for the first time, I, told, I said I saw it in college. Mm -hmm. My college job was working in the library. Okay. And so we had the bowels. Uh, in Beagley Library, where I went to school, there's the underground part, and it's very dark in the morning, which is usually whenever I was putting things back. And we did still have card catalogs at that time, even though it was the, the early 2000s. And they had these big rolling, it was like this, it almost looks like a safe, where like you roll it to one side and you can walk down the aisle and then there's the two aisle of books. And then you walk out of it and you roll it the other way and then you can go down the other side. Okay. And so it was just this big massive thing. And so as I was watching the whole beginning of this movie, I'm like, holy shit, I'm back in the creepy part of Beagle Library. <laughs> like I almost felt a little scary. I'm like, something's going to happen to her. And it was 
I like went back to like my t- my early 20s self where there were times when early in the morning when I was down there when it was so dark I'm like something's going to jump out and bite me. Yeah. Like I know that's irrational. I know that's crazy. I know what's down here cuz I put most of it down here, but somebody's going to leap out from the book stacks and scare the shit out of me. Yeah. And so that was just cool and yeah, watching all of that. The other things I really liked Bill Murray after Sigourney Reaver. Okay. Bill Venkman for me at the beginning struggled and I'll go into this later, but I just didn't find him funny. I didn't. But when he meets Sigourney Weaver for the date, and the the that's brilliant dialogue. Bill the, Murray is fantastic. The when, date, or when he first goes over there to check her apartment. Actually, both. I okay. I, I got to do that because he actually gets funny, and and that whole when he first meets Sigourney Weaver, I think my favorite scene of the whole thing is his monologue during the date when he's talking to Zool. Oh, they're not they're not Zool. <laughs> Zuli. <laughs> yeah that that whole that whole thing is, is just fantastic. <laughs> And the other thing that's that's really good and probably my favorite thing from the whole movie, the car. The car it's is iconic. Po- is, the car is possibly what I remember most from the movie. And when I watch the movie, I realize they barely talk about it. Yeah. They don't talk about what's on it. They don't talk about how it works, which maybe that's like Boba Fett. Nobody talks about it, but everybody knows what Boba Fett is. Yeah. Nobody talks about the car, but everybody knows what it is. But I loved Ecto-1. Like that was just that's cool to me. The, I love the car. It actually made me put the Lego <laughs> Ecto set <laughs> in my shopping cart on Amazon. Right out, literally as the credits rolled, I hit stopped. I pick up my phone and I put the <laughs> Ecto one uh, Lego building block toy in my. Uh, and in it's my a really cart. unique siren. Yeah, it's a European siren. Yeah, it's a really unique siren, and it almost, I don't know, it feels supernatural when you hear that. So so what were your best parts of the movie, Joe? Well, well not to be, you know, contrarian here, but <laughs> <laughs> Bill Murray, at the very beginning, when you're first introduced <laughs> to this guy, and you get a sense of who he is, he's a hustler. Yeah. He's in it for himself. He's clay- Yeah, he's got a degree in paranormal psychology, but he doesn't believe in the shit. He doesn't. And you can tell from the get-go because he's doing this ESP experiment because college kids, when you're in college, sometimes you sign up for these $50 things. Oh, do an experiment on me. No, $5. That was the other shocking thing. You can keep your $5. Yes. yes. <laughs> wow, <laughs> 5 bucks. You did that for 5 bucks. How sit- far we've He's come. sitting there and he's with this one goofy-looking guy and this girl and they're, he's got this deck of cards and they're, trying to, the guy, they're both trying to guess what's on the other side of the card. Wavy lines, a circle, a square, whatever it is. And they're given electric shocks whenever they're wrong, but he's given the girl nothing but praise. You're getting them all right, and she's getting them all wrong. Yeah, every single one she got wrong, and the guy actually gets the a guy, couple right. The guy gets them all wrong except for the last one. Oh, that's right. Yeah, which he goes, I don't know, a couple of wavy lines. <laughs> Bill Murray just delivery goes, I'm sorry, it's just not your day. <laughs> and slowly stares this guy down as he's about to shock him. And the guy goes, he flips out, he leaves, and you realize Bill Murray did this all just to get a date with the girl. And you're like, you know what? I get it. I know who this guy is. I'm in. And when you meet his friends, you realize he's the guy that was in the back of the classroom with all your friends who wasn't going to study. Oh, I totally get that. Yeah. Yes. He was your everyman, if you will. But your everyman. But see, I was that guy that was doing all the studying, and I was so annoyed at the people. I'm like, actually, true story. <laughs> that person that sat in the back of the room and didn't study for anything was my best friend growing up. Oh. <laughs> all the girls loved him. Everybody loved him. He got away with everything. 
But I was the kid that was doing all of the work and nobody noticed. I was busting my ass mm-hmm. and nobody noticed, but people would only notice me because I was friends with that guy. Well, another thing, Rick Moranis. Yeah. He, he's God, brilliant. He's so funny. And when I'm going to read you some trivia later that's going to blow your mind. Oh, I can it. actually get a tax write-off for this because I'm I'm doing I my guests are only my my <laughs> I am my my, my 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 clients and 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 not, and not my friends cuz I can do that as a tax write-off. So see, when, I can't quote some of the movies. When he turns into Vince Clortho, the keymaster, and he walks up to the handsome cab Oh no! When he when he's talking to Egon, and he gives this <laughs> incredible backstory, like he came back as a giant slore. You know? <laughs> You're sitting there going, "This guy's nuts." <laughs> that that is one instance where I was like, Dan Aykroyd had fun writing this script. Oh yeah, he just made up. And now it's classic. And you know you're right. When Bill Murray meets possessed Dana, the gatekeeper, it's it is a timeless shot. That is fantastic because he instantly knows something's on. But then he's like, you know what? <laughs> you're batshit crazy, but I'm gonna talk to you like a normal. That whole scene is awesome. Well, when she answers the door the first time and she goes, "Are you the keymaster?" and he goes, "No," and just slams the door, and then he knocks again. Are you the keymaster? Yes. Yes, yes I, I am. am. <laughs> That was brilliant. But, you know, aside from all the brilliance of this movie, it is a very funny movie. But they're, not every movie is perfect. There are some bad parts. JC, what parts to you were not good in this movie? All right, plot holes. Plot holes. Plot holes bug me. You know how big I am into stories and stuff. And when I say plot holes, it's the unbelievable. Like, there were a lot of MacGuffins in here. And the MacGuffins that I'm leading to is, first off, everyone in New York instantly loves this, these guys. Instantly? Oh yeah, from the public standpoint, yes. I, I got that sense. See, I didn't get that sense until they saved the hotel. Yes, which is when they saved the hotel is the first time all of New York knew who they were. Right. Nobody pays attention to those commercials, so I don't consider all of New York watching them. Oh, I but, do because that's how you got your that's how you got all your news in nineteen eighty four. Yeah. Okay. Anywho, like so that felt like a MacGuffin to me. Sorry. Yeah. I mean, he was on Larry. They were on Larry King at one point. And the other storytelling plot hole is something that you absolutely love, and and I really hope he doesn't reach across the table and choke me. The EPA guy having so much power seemingly from nowhere. Okay. Like that just what? Like the I get that they needed that conflict. I get that. That was a storytelling technique. Yes. The EPA makes the most sense. He literally comes out of nowhere. Yes, he does. He comes out of nowhere and flaunts all of this authority and all of this da-da-da-da-da and instantly becomes an asshole. And I'm like, what? Like, and maybe I'm looking at it too much from a 21st century mind. I'm like, nobody's going to let this guy get away with this much. Well. He would need he would need so much more document. And I know he comes back later with the whole envelope and all of this stuff. That just, that felt like a big leap and... It fell out of left field, and okay. it could have been cleaned up a little bit better. When And when I say worst parts, these, these don't make this a bad movie. That's just me being nitpicky. No, being, no, no. That, that, yeah. 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 And there was a couple things of CGI that didn't hold up. The whole, the dogs, to me, were awful. Now, in 1984, they that were wasn't great. CGI. There was like a little... That's, like, that's practical effects and matte paintings. Well, it looked like there was like bright lights around them. This movie was nominated running. for Best Visual Effects in 1984. I mean, and lost to the following movie, Temple of Doom. Temple of Doom does not have good effects either compared to today. See, but I felt like some held up and others didn't. Slimer, I think, holds up. 
Mm-hmm. I think the the rays coming out of their proton packs those hold up. Yeah. The dogs. So the then in, then maybe I shouldn't say bad CAGI. The practical effects to me didn't work. Okay. They looked too cheesy. They looked too tales from the crypt. Yes, they <laughs> felt very tales from the crypt. Thank you. I was gonna say tales from the creepy, but no, that wasn't it. <laughs> see, those dogs still scare the shit out of me. Oh no! See, I didn't find them scary at all. Yeah, I didn't. I it the other thing that actually I should have said this in the good because I just now looked at my notes and saw it. I want to read the spirit guide they keep looking at or they keep bringing up. It's made up. Ego, I know, but like I want to read that book. I want <laughs> I want there to be an actual version of that book so I can read because it's source material and it's the historian in me. The fact that they keep going to that as the source, I'm like, oh, I want to read that. Yeah. I want to know what this source is. Like, where are you making this up from? But I know it's a plot device. Mm-hmm. They just use it to move forward. So what are your worst parts of the movie? Okay, I got a couple. One is the mayor in his cabinet. I, You know what I didn't like was this didn't work because you made a comment earlier. The whole city loves these guys. Yeah. The, and the whole city loves them because they've seen them doing their jobs and they're doing it. The whole city knows what they do. Yep. And you've got the mayor in his cabinet Siding with the guy who's saying that none of it's real. Yep. I didn't buy that. I'm I, like, I don't buy it either. Yeah. And the other thing, which this is just, I don't know if this is just my bias, but the New York job of, I love this town. It, it, it's, I'm so tired of people in New York City. Yeah. Every time New York is in the uh, movies, we got to yeah. pat it on the back and say how great it is. I feel like it's, a, it, I feel like it's like that one kid that needs constant self-esteem boosts. Yeah. Like, you're special. Don't You're special. You're more special than ever. You're a snowflake. Yep. You know? I, I completely agree. I feel like you're New York. Yeah. If, if you're this great, act like it. You don't need to constantly be told you're great. Yeah. Now, that being said, there is a couple, only a couple of towns where I can imagine this movie working. New York City is one of them. Yeah. You know? You need that. You need the... The ser- you need the skepticism that is stereotypical of New York City in this movie. You need the... Uh, hustle and bustle that you see for the montages. You know, like Chicago would have worked also. Yep. Of downtown Los Angeles. Yep. I, would, so would this have worked in a Nashville? Too small. Too small? Yeah. Oh. I know. I'm sorry. That's okay. <laughs> Joe, who is the audience for this movie? I think this is an audience for anyone who wants to be introduced to what a timeless comedy looks like. Timeless I, comedy. I, that doesn't mean it's an A. It means it's a timeless comedy. I, I understand what you're saying, and I agree in that everybody should see it. Um, or I'm actually going to go one step further. I think everyone needs to see this, mm-hmm. but you may only need to see it once. And but you need to at least see it that one time. Yeah. Everyone needs to see it once. It's that much of a classic. It deserves a classic title. It's also one of the first movies to ever bridge science fiction and comedy together. That's cool. Yeah. And it, knowing that factoid, it's even more of a, this is some something that people must see. Now, before we get into our grades here, there's some trivia I want to throw at you here that's just... Uh, I think you're going to get a kick out of it. Okay. Yeah, this is, this is some stuff. That I was reading it earlier, and I, w- I couldn't believe what I was reading. In 1985, 1984, okay. this movie was nominated for two Oscars. Okay. Best effects and best music, the original song, Ghostbusters. Well, the music completely makes sense. The effects, I'm scratching my head on that. Well, it's 1984. It is. The other but t- it's post-Star Wars. It's post-Return of the Jedi. Okay. And if you think about it, they weren't using the same effects. But I felt like, okay, I felt like the practical effects and the special effects in Star Wars are still way better than this. But they, maybe it's the budget and ILM and all that, yeah. and it's still not well known. The other know. two movies that were nominated that year was Temple of Doom, which won. Yeah, and when you, when you say that, I didn't even know. I guess maybe the heart thing. 
They're probably doing the heart. Which, if you watch that now, it holds up as much as the 84 Ghostbusters does. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and the other one is 2010. There were three movies nominated. Those were the, That was the one that won. And Oh, uh, well, then it's not exactly a bomb. Like. Yeah. In the middle of the film's initial release, to keep interest going, Ivan Reitman had a trailer run, which was basically the commercial for the Ghostbusters, with an actual phone number that if you called it, you got a recorded message from Bill Murray and Dan Aykroyd saying something to the effect of, hi, we're out catching ghosts right now. And they got 1,000 calls per day for six weeks. Well, that's really cool, actually. I and know. That would actually be a whole lot easier to set up today because you could just automate all of it. Yeah. That's kind of what Halo did. Halo 2 did that. They would hide numbers in a lot of the marketing that they did. Yeah. And if people called them, it would play pre-recorded messages of the story, like little <laughs> snippets of the story. So, yeah, that's very Halo-esque. I like, although they did it first. So Halo's Never mind. Uh, that's smart. Almost none of the scenes were filmed as scripted, and in fact, almost all of the scenes had at least one or two ad-libs. Most of Bill Murray's lines were made up on the spot. That's awesome. Yes. But it, that also makes sense, because a lot of ad-lib, to me, can fall flat, and maybe that's why I didn't find fun of, some of his jokes funny. But also, some of the best jokes that you could ever think of come out of ad-lib. And if he ad-libbed that entire scene with Zool... That's comedy gold. That's just genius on Bill Murray's part. The party scene where Lewis Tully mingles with his party guests yeah. is not only taken in one continuous shot, the whole thing's entirely improvised. Rick Moranis is a genius. That's <laughs> I couldn't awesome. believe it when I saw that. That's awesome. Because you watch that scene, you're like, he's all over the place, and he doesn't say uh or um or anything. He's just flowing with his brain. That's Rick Moranis is a genius. <laughs> just the <laughs> fact that he stopped to raise kids and not continue his career <laughs> means we suffered, but Rick Moranis' kids, your dad was a genius. Yes. That's, that's impressive. Uh, had Eddie Murphy accepted the role of Winston, the character was actually meant to appear in more of the film. He was to have joined the team much earlier, and it would have been he who was slimed at the hotel. When Murphy declined the role, he went to Beverly Hills Cop, which ended up making more money than Ghostbusters that year. I was going to say, that seems smart for him, but I do wonder, like, what was the point of the other guy? He had literally, I think, three lines in the entire movie, and I didn't feel like any of them were that funny. Winston was meant to be... Because when they realized that they had Bill Murray, who was supposed to be the, Eddie, uh, the everyman once they hired him, because he yeah. wasn't supposed to be that spot, yeah, uh, they realized that he's not the everyman. You need someone who's got the audience perspective, and that's Winston. I, but that didn't come across. Okay. I mean, that makes sense when you tell me that, but watching the movie, that's not what I got. Rick Moranis is a genius. We'll agree? Yes. John Candy was supposed to be Lewis Tully. I don't think it'd be as funny. And he, I love John he, Candy. He's a genius. I think Rick Moranis is just funnier. Well, this is, this is where the gold happens. John Candy quit the role of Lewis Tully because his ideas for the character were being rejected. According to Ivan Reitman in the commentary, Candy's suggestion said he wanted the character to have a German accent and have a pair of schnauzer dogs. No one felt the German accent was appropriate for the character, and since there was dog imagery already in the movie, they felt having Tully own dogs was too much. So Candy quit early in production, and Moranis was cast in the last minute. That's awesome, because I also think a German... Why do you need the German accent, and what's the thing with the dogs? Yeah. Yeah, that's weird. Until the release of Home Alone, this was the highest-grossing comedy of all time. Wow. This one's cool. The guy that plays Peck, William... Uh, Arthur... Uh, the yeah, I know guy? who you mean, yeah. William Atherton called Ivan Reitman, complaining that the movie ruined his life. The character of Walter Peck was so hated that people would talk to Atherton as if they were giving the character Peck a piece of their mind, and apparently more than once, physical fights had been started with Atherton in bars. 
that sucks for him. But the character is pretty because he comes out of nowhere. He's an he's seemingly an asshole for no reason whatsoever. Well, it's funny because after that, every character he played was like that because he played him in Die Hard and Die Hard Two. Yeah, he. When I saw that character, I instantly knew he was a bad guy because I thought, oh, this guy, this actor only plays bad guys. Yes, Gozer was originally to be played by Paul Rubens. Really? Who turned down the role. In the original script, Gozer took on the form of Evo Shandor, the ghost building's architect. Oh, yeah. That's actually, I like that. Who started the original Gozer cult and resembled a pale, slender, unremarkable man in a business suit. Pee Wee Herman. Oh, that'd have been funny. Gozer's final form was described as David Bowie meets Grace Jones. In fact, Grace Jones was considered for the role also. Instead, they got Ivan Drago's wife. No, it wasn't her. It wasn't Bridget Nielsen. That was not the woman from Rocky Four. Nope. It looked like the woman from Rocky Four. It was not Bridget Nielsen. Who was it? Uh, I don't remember, but I think... The funny thing was, an- another piece of trivia was that she had such a hard time with the accent, the English, the accent to speak, that Bill Murray would constantly make fun of her because at one point she says, choose and pay. And she kept making it sound like Jews and berries. Uh, yeah, <laughs> Bill Murray. <laughs> now... Here are some interesting little things. In 2000, readers of Total Film Magazine voted Ghostbusters the 44th greatest comedy film of all time. The American Film Institute ranked it 28th in its list of top 100 comedies. Your boys at IGN yeah. voted Ghostbusters the greatest comedy ever. Really? Yeah, I don't agree with them. Being, being all that as it may, movie report card. JC? Mine's a B-. minus. You gave it a B-. minus. Mine's a B-. minus. And I'm giving it an A-. minus. Yep. I was going to give it a B plus. I, then I gave it an A. Then I moved it to a B plus. And I, yeah, I, we, we had talked about this at one point. On thing. And I looked, he told me the, the B plus. And then I go to edit the script and I see A and I'm like, what? Yeah. He, he changed his mind on that one. Yeah. And I, I, it was one of the things where I, I, I realized that I'm still, la- I'm still laughing consistently throughout this movie. But I also have to take back some things, which is, you know, there, yeah, there's some plot problems in this movie. But I'm not going to say that the plot problems ruin the enjoyment of the movie. And when I watch a comedy, I expect to laugh all the way through. And I personally did. There you go. So there you go. B minus, A minus, it averaged out to a B plus. Yep. Uh, B plus B. B plus B. Yep. Yeah. Which I think is a fair spot for it. If C yeah. is average, it is above average. It's not the greatest of all time. Is no, it? this it, doesn't go in the Pantheon. No. We went on Friday... We went yesterday on a movie date to go see a movie, and it happened to be Ghostbusters, Ghostbusters 2016. 2016. Um, you know what? We we know that this has already gone long, so we're going to try. We actually wrote little mini uh, synops or little mini critiques here now, and I know Joe normally does this uh, when he sees something over the weekend. He does it for the Monday show. So him and I have both put together our quick one-paragraph review of what we thought of, of Ghost, Ghostbusters 2016. So we won't go too in-depth. We're not going to interrupt each other because we've already had that. When when we had the, the car ride home yesterday, we <laughs> sort of hashed it out and yeah. all that stuff. So Joe's going to read his paragraph, and then I will read mine. And okay. we're not going to interrupt each other. Ghostbusters 2016. For me, this movie is a C-. minus. I personally had a problem at the very beginning of this thing with the all-female cast. I will admit that. I will admit that fully. I don't think it's misogyny. I think that sometimes we look at things and we say, you know what, it's strange and different, but I kind of warmed up to it. And 
when we were going to see a movie, I got a little excited. I was kind of, okay, let's see what this is now. I'd just seen Ghostbusters. I'd just seen Ghostbuster 2. As a concept reboot, and that's what this movie is. It's a concept reboot in that the idea itself is being rebooted, not the characters. You're not going to get the same characters in this. You're not going to get the exact same plot. It's a concept reboot is how it is being marketed as, as in nothing else has happened before this movie. No callbacks, no nothing. We're starting over fresh, like Star Trek did. Star Trek started fresh. In fact, when they introduced Spock in Star Trek, it's not as a cameo. He's an actual character, and you learn that, oh, he had a backstory prior to this. And if you'd never seen any Star Trek, you kind of got a history of Spock based on what you saw in this movie. And you start to realize this is an alternate universe that it's in. Every time this movie gets you to forget what had happened in the original Ghostbusters, they either use a story point or a cameo to remind you that it's just not the same. They throw in Dan Aykroyd. And you re- you're sitting there going, oh, I'm, I'm behind these girls. And you go, just not the same group. Oh, and there's this. Oh, you're doing the exact same thing here. It's inconsistent all around, with a few laughs sporadically thrown in. It's good, but this felt like those remakes of Halloween or Friday the 13th. An original story would have been a better move. You could have easily made a sequel with an all-female cast 30 years after the events of Ghostbusters 2. The guys would be retired and would have had recruits throughout the years. That way, you wouldn't need the original cast to show up because they aren't part of the business anymore. Through time, it's changed to an all-female group. Even even have them not trusted because they're an all-female group now. Maybe the last male of that group has left, and now because they're all-female, now you're dealing with the misogyny of people not trusting them because it's an all-girl group, and they can't do the same job as the the guys did before because they're all-female. I can buy that. I can can get behind that. That is very much a sign of the times now. It would be interesting, and and it would be able to hold on to the same mythology that you used before, that they were there once. And you wouldn't have to call back and try to get people in the theater because Bill Murray shows up or because there's a statue of Egon. You don't need those then because they're part of the mythology. The Tekken effects are amazing. They do a good job updating all those. And unfortunately, it's with a less funny version. It's just not hitting every single time. Therefore, if the only thing improved in this movie, is the tech and effects and the story points remained pretty much the same. I mean, let's be honest. I didn't care about Rowan. I didn't know who the fuck he was. There was nothing behind it. At least in this movie, at least in the original Ghostbusters, when they had Dana possessed, I knew Dana beforehand. I didn't know the bad guy in this beforehand. He just came up bad, and that was it. Okay, I'm supposed to buy he's a bad guy. There was no explanation for it. So, it's average, but just, just just a teeny bit below average. It's a C minus for me. It's not a C. Just because of those things, I think that if they had latched less onto the old group, the old actors, this could have been a C. That's my say. Go. All right. For me, Ghostbusters 2016, this movie is a C plus. There are so many nods to the original, both awesome and forced, that if you truly love the original, I'm not sure how you can't find this one similar. The jokes are new and updated, the cast is new and updated, but as in the first one, the science jargon left me feeling eh. The jokes also, at the beginning to me, were eh, but they got so much better as the movie went on. Kate McKenna's character actually became one of my favorites as the movie went on, but right at the beginning I was like, uh, not so sure what I think about this. 
Uh, the only reason I don't give this movie the same grade as the one from 1984 is because it's even harder for me to believe in a post-9-11 world that people would allow a group of people with nuclear reactors on their backs <laughs> to just do uh, whatever the hell they wanted. That, that MacGuffin for me was just really, really hard. That The whole running around with a nuclear reactor in 1984 makes sense. In 2016, <laughs> what? No, not not going to happen. Uh, I also felt like in uh, in Joe is losing his mind here right now. I was thinking, you like it makes sense in '84 to walk around with a nuclear reactor on your back. I'm like, how many people did you know walking around with a nuclear reactor in their back in '84? Cold War. Well, everything was about nuclear reactors. Um. I also felt like Peck did not work in 1984. He was one of the things I didn't like. But a character like him would have worked in this. Everyone knows about sort of government oversight and things like that in 2016. And that would have would have kind of worked. Whereas that wasn't, at least, and again, in, I was a kid in 1984. So that wouldn't have been as big of a deal. Um, and there were a lot more plot holes. The jump from one idea to the next and from one scene to the next sometimes it wouldn't connect and sometimes you would be like why is why is this happening there wasn't a transition i don't know why this is happening as opposed to what happened before and there were more of those in this film as opposed to the one 1984 so that's another reason why i dropped it down a little lower still however this movie made me laugh i laughed a lot it made me smile and I loved the updated car. I really did. So all in all, if you enjoyed the original 1984 one, you can enjoy this one. The 2016 Ghostbusters is a good movie. It is a C plus. And I think we both agree on this one that this is not the epic fail that misogynists out there thought was going to be. No, it's not. It's not by any means a Pantheon movie. No. A great movie for that matter. Which it's, the original wasn't either. This is This is a movie that... You'll watch, and then probably in five to ten years, forget a lot about You'll forget it, but then if you want to watch it again, you'll enjoy it again. But if you have to sit there and go, okay, which Ghostbusters movie are we going to watch? It probably isn't going to be this one. It's probably going to be the original. Or you watch them both back to back. But then you've seen the same movie twice. That's true. I don't know. Okay, there you go. That, that's actually a really good question. In five years, when you go to watch this, do you watch the original or do you watch the updated? And yeah. That's something time will tell. That's something time will tell. That's all I got time for today, Movie Planeteers. You can email the Movie Planet using the address movieplanetpodcast at gmail.com. Don't forget to pass the word on to your friends about the show. Subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Overcast, Podbean, or Spotify, and help the show get on its feet with a four- or five-star review. Tweet with any questions, comments, theories, and I'll try to fit them into the show next time we're on the air. Send those tweets to at movieplanetpod, and like us on Facebook and Instagram using the links in the show notes. Special thanks to Twisterium and Sound J Music for providing our intro music and our ending music. Thanks for listening, and happy movie watching. <laughs>